Thank you, Lee. Um, so I guess uh, where this panel discussion came from, um, multiple times in scripture, uh, we're instructed to take counsel um, before we do something. Um, a lot of the times are in Proverbs. In Proverbs 14, 11, where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And in uh, James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as is working. Um, so as Christians, we're called to be open with one another, to share with one another, and to um, both give and receive counsel from one another. And I think it's something we do as friends and Christians regularly. Um, but tonight we have four brothers who were willing to um, open up and share uh, responses to some questions that we got from the congregation um, here at Myerstown. Uh, I guess I should have also opened it up to the others, but um, maybe if we have time at the end, we'll see. Um, also in uh, Proverbs 15:22, without counsel, purposes are disappointed, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. And uh, the last one from Proverbs 24, 6, for by wise counsel, they shall make war, and in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Um, so we're going to have four uh, men come up here, and I'm going to ask them questions. Um, they're going to hopefully all, or at least some of them, give responses to most of the questions or all of the questions. Um, and then after each question, before I move on to the next question, I'll allow any of you to respond either to the question or to something they said. It's pretty open-ended. Um, if we run out of questions, we're going to end early. If we run out of time, we won't do all the questions. So um, that's pretty much what we have. Um, so our first uh, participant, we're going to start with the oldest among them, is Sylvan Whitmer. Sylvan, if you want to come front at this time. Sylvan is uh, 71 years, 9 months, and 25 days old. Or 30... Or 37 million odd minutes, 37 million minutes, 26,233 days. He's the father of three girls, so I'm looking forward to um, what he has to share with us. Next, we have Tony Landis, 61 years, zero months, and eight days. So, uh, sorry, Tony, I guess I missed your birthday. That was recently. Um, that's 22,288 days. Tony is the father of four girls and two boys, and uh, I always enjoy hearing what Tony has to share, uh, whether it's in Sunday school or after church, whatever it is, so um, looking forward to that as well. And uh, next on our list, we jump a little bit in age here, Mike Weaver, 30 years, three months, 20 days. Any guesses to how many minutes that is? No mathematicians among us. 16, approximately 16 million minutes or 11,070 days. And Mike is the father of four girls. Um, he also um, dealt with cancer as a young man and uh, lived out in uh, Cherry Creek, for those of you who don't know him, um, as a missionary out there. So more life experiences than I've had, so I'm also looking forward to what Mike has to say. And youngest, last but not least on our list, Damien Good. 24 years, 10 months, 26 days old, 13 million minutes, approximately, 9,098 days, father of one boy and one girl, one of which was just um, recently in the hospital. So thank you, Damien, for your willingness to participate. When I was thinking about this, Damien came right to my mind, and then he had quite a lot on his plate, and I felt bad asking him, but then uh, I asked him anyway, and he said yes. <laughs> So thank you all for your willingness. Um, Zach was kind enough to put the questions up on the projector for you all so you can see what they are answering if you get distracted or forget. Um, I'm going to get out of the way so you can see them, and uh, we'll get started. I'm not sure how close to hold this. Our first question we have, um, what is something that you see the older generation did well 
that the younger generation is coming up short. So something that the older folks among us, you know, did well and maybe the younger generation isn't quite meeting the standard or um, holding up to the heritage that we had. So I'm not sure if I should pick on someone or let you decide. We'll see if one of you go. If not, I'll pick on someone. Uh, one thing I thought of is, is uh, driving without a GPS. <laughs> not many people that do that now anymore. Um, but yeah, more seriously, I think uh, the older generation um, has a more practical approach to life and uh, it's more value in simplicity. Uh, and I think uh, it's something us in the younger generation can, can learn from uh, the focus on... Uh, Simple lifestyle, practical. Uh, in the younger generation, we're often uh, just uh, looking for the next technical innovation and what's the latest and greatest, but uh, there's something of value to uh, simplicity. I thought of uh, verbal communication. Um, you know, years ago, we We'd sit on front porches, talk to the neighbors, and there was a lot of, a lot more to communication than what we see today. You saw uh, body language, you saw all that. And when someone told a story, you got more out of it than somebody texting a story to you. And I'm not mocking technology here, uh, it's just that we didn't have that. And that's how we communicated, we, we were face to face. and. I get frustrated sometimes when uh, even my wife, for one, she'll text somebody. I said, why don't you just call them? Uh, well, they might be busy. And, you know, technology has its advantages. I appreciate it. I wouldn't want to do without it anymore. But uh, verbal communication, don't be afraid to stop in and visit somebody, especially older people. Um, verbal communication is is uh, something that's needed a lot more than what we have. Way back. We didn't have the modern technology, like Tony said. Oh, well, we'll just quit texting. We meet with people face to face, and there was a uh, connection there with the person you were talking to. You met them face to face. Today, technology is going that fast that at my, my age, I can't keep after. I'm back reading the second and third word when they're done texting the 70th word. So, but what happens is the modern technology is taking away the face-to-face communication, and there is something in that. Plus, with the modern technology... There's a lot of people becoming couch potatoes, if you know what I mean. I'll just sit here and we'll put it on Facebook or Skype or Twitter or whatever you have. Uh, And I think that uh, we lose something like that without that personal communication. I guess that leaves me. I have a couple thoughts as well. I should try and keep everything the shortest because I'm the least amount of minutes under my belt. I believe the younger generation is weak on holding fast the tradition of the fathers, as 2 Thessalonians 2.15, delivered either by letter or by the word of mouth or by traditions. And so what I mean by that is maybe the holy kiss, plain suits or cape dress, respect for elders, understanding and obeying God-given authority, doing things a certain way, and then obeying authority. And so I guess you could say traditions is maybe we're something that we're not quite as strong in. Things that have been passed on from generation to generation or generation seemingly questions things that are a tradition. There is something in the stability of tradition, and that doesn't allow doctrine or opinions of men to quickly change or modify our churches. And so an excerpt from Distinctive Beliefs of the Anabaptist was a book, I forget when I read it last year maybe, but young people sometimes look at this and see legalism. Legalists emphasize good works without emphasizing an inner experience of faith. While legalists may be spiritually dead with traditionalism, the answer to legalism is not to discard a biblical tradition that our forefathers held on to. P. 
People and groups that discard biblical traditions in their effort to be free of legalism, they end up rejoice, replacing right traditions with traditions and rituals barred either from the world or, in my case, I would probably say evangelicals. That is something I feel the older generation did well in, holding fast to the tradition of the fathers. I think the other thing that came up in my mind is maybe we're more entitled. I think the older generation would um, know the value of hard work and being grateful for what, we, what they have. All right. Oh, is this on? All right. Thank you for your responses. Uh, just to clear something up, you're all a lot of the same amount of time. Damon, you don't have to feel like you need to be shorter because you're the youngest. Uh, and uh, one thing from what Sylvan said there, I, I had sent a group text out to all of them, and I was getting responses, and I barely sent the text, and Damien replied. And then uh, a little while later, I got another text, and I told my wife, oh, it's probably Mike. I said, it's probably going to go in order of age. It was Sylvan, so... All right, so uh, next up we have the, uh, the inverse of that question or the opposite. What's something that uh, you all see the younger generation doing well at? Maybe not better than the older generation. I guess I do have it worded that way, but just something the younger generation is doing well. Go ahead. I think uh, dating has come a long way. Uh, when I was younger, you dated a couple girls, and then when you find one you like, that's the one you hung on to. Uh, today it's a little more serious than that, and uh, that's how it should be. The other thing I see is uh, it's a lot more outreach, uh, missions, things to do that we didn't have when I grew up, um, and, and I appreciate that, seeing the younger generation reaching out that way. Yeah, uh, I agree with what Tony said. Uh, today, there's a lot more opportunity for the young people to go in volunteer service, half a year, a year, whatever. And I see the young people picking up on that where when, when I was young, we didn't have that much. And uh, opportunities to go out and serve on the mission field so I encourage the younger generation, whether you're young married or wish you were married or whatever, uh, hang in there. You know, the Lord, the Lord is faithful on his end, and he opens doors all the time. And uh, we should be ready. If you feel the call of the Lord to go serve, it doesn't have to be in the farm field. Yes, we served three years in Haiti, and it's an experience I wouldn't want to give up. But, you know, there's a lot of mission projects right here in the United States, right here in Pennsylvania, in Lebanon, Lancaster, Berks County. There's a lot of opportunity to be able to go out and, and serve the Lord. And uh, I think the younger generation is, is taking care of that. The next thing as far as courting, like uh, Tony said, we used to go out. Youth group, well, this time you went with that girl, next time you went with another one, and so forth. And then when you found the right one, or thought you found the right one, you hung on to that one where we don't see jumping around like that, and I think that's a good thing. Don't fight over it. Yeah, well, I <clears throat> I'd thought about this question for a while, and... and uh, being in the younger generation, it just doesn't seem right to, to say that we're doing something better because obviously the older generation is, is wiser, more life experience, and and I don't want to, yeah, make it sound like uh, the younger generation is better at something. But as, as I thought about that, yeah, there's um, a lot of crossover as well in, in what, I'm, what I was thinking about, uh, but it's basically being willing to ask hard questions about why we do things the way we do, and I realize that that strength can also be a weakness as well, depending on where it leads you. Um, but if if we wrestle through the hard questions um, and figure out why why we're at uh, the place that we are, um, I think if we can, if we can do that, uh, we're, we'll be more firmly established in in what we believe. And it's not just uh, that we're 
doing things a certain way because that's the way we've always done it. Yeah, I would echo what Mike said as far as respect to the older generation. There are so many strong points, I think, on both sides of the generations, and um, we have a lot to learn as a younger generation from those who are wise among us and have the, the minutes, quote-unquote, behind them. So um, some things that Dale would have told me, and even my father, he said, um, we didn't ask some of the questions that you are as young people. And so I think one of the things is they're searching for answers or digging for truth. Maybe that's because there's so much technology and there's so much overabundance of truth being thrown at you in different viewpoints. Um, I think the younger generation is searching for truth. So we as a younger generation are searching for answers and authenticity in an age of overabundance of information and nominalism or a watered-down Christianity. It's not out of disrespect or unappreciation for our forefathers and heritage we have in front of us. If it is... We are on a dangerous path. We want Jesus to be the heart of why we do church and everything we do in our lives. And so we want a connected and real Christian church. All right. Thank you. I'm enjoying listening to you. I'm uh, enjoying it more than I thought I would. I thought I'd be too nervous to gather anything, but I'm, I'm trying to write this down. <clears throat> the next question, what are the three most immediate dangers facing the Christian slash Anabaptist church. Three most immediate dangers facing us as Anabaptists. Damien, why don't you go first? All right. So again, I, I like to get um, thoughts from those who are wiser. Um, so I asked my father-in-law and some of my brothers-in-laws and so on and so forth. So some of that's from them, too. But the first one I would say is technology. Technology is bringing on an unprecedented level of peer pressure, suicide, pornography, secrecy, and individualism. Technology is affecting our youth and our churches in deeper and more real ways. Some of that was already mentioned. The most of us know Keystone Youth Function, as well as other youth functions, are suffering. The youth currently are in the first generation who have been growing up with tech from toddlers on up. And the stats tell us that 90% of our youth are dealing with besetting sins and about 70% of men in our churches, 45 to 50% of our women. And while I didn't agree with those stats at first, either if you do some research, it's proving true. While the benefits of technology are immense and the potential reach are amazing, we've got to be talking on how we are doing with, dealing with, and handling media and tech in our homes. Intentionality with the use and handling of our tech will either bring us as Anabaptist great rewards or great ruin. Gary Miller gives us some very direct tips on the fight against Satan's drug of technology. Um, I also said busyness or individualism or perfectionism would be the second one. Um, so some of the community aspect, right? No more barn raisings. Uh, there's not near as much of a community hub, you could say. Um, not as much simple and slow fellowship, maybe. Um, but everyone is running on tighter schedules um, and doing um, more all trying to balance our own shortcomings and at the same time trying to get as much accomplished or yet perfected and yet appear as good and perfect Mennonites while not yet publicly recognizing that all of us have fallen short and can't cast the first stone, yet continue to hold our opinions and thoughts as some as, as the right ones. And so we saw that in the last little bit, right? Political um, turmoil or the mass mandates or whatever else. Um, and some of it has splintered our churches. Is this good or is this bad? Well, tech, materialism, and affluence have all led to a more disconnected fellowship, busier lifestyles, and how are we going to have energy to carry out the work of the kingdom if we can't have time for personal devotions, church meetings Wednesday night, or for caring and discipling those around us, or being involved in our families to raise the future generation? And I heard a saying one time that said, two things well, one thing good, as well as maybe we all need a more intentional focus with our life. A men's organization study studies missions around the world. This is from an excerpt from Created to Learn. A men's organization studies missions around the world, but few engage in mission activities in their own neighborhood. We sing I Surrender All with heartfelt emotion, but love for the Lord is convenient during the week. We speak of the ideal, but live in the ordeal. So the second one was busyness or individualism and perfectionism. And the third one I would say is a generation gap, which will lead to a weak, weak church. And this, again, is not to disrespect one generation or the other. A lack of understanding amongst those who are wise and those who are young. Overview of church and what is good for the church. Have a possibility to bring more church splits. We saw enough of church splits from the 70s to the 2000s. Um, but there could be more. Nominalism and falling away. 
We both as a young generation and old generation need to learn from each other and lean on each other as we endeavor to not be entangled with the cares of the world that does so easily beset us. Neither side of the generational gap should feel disrespected as one side has a lot more experience and another a different view, obviously impacted by technology. We as a younger generation should be willing to hear the voice of wisdom that is among us in relation to all sorts of issues. Then there's other ones you could say, fervency or materialism or political involvement are all um, dangerous topics and dangerous things that I think have come up. We also have a ton to be grateful for and a ton of strengths as well. But these are some weaknesses, I guess, or things that could affect us. One of the dangers I see is uh, letting the doctrine, letting the dis discipline slip away. Uh, what we didn't allow 20 years ago, we allow today. And that is the danger of the church is getting apostatizing is slowly slipping away due to our priorities not being in the right place. That means, how, I, how determined are we in our minds to get the Bible school, prayer meeting, Sunday evening service, et cetera, et cetera, the list goes on and on. Is it a high priority or is it not? Or you'll say to someone, well, did you call or did you go do this or that? No, I didn't get around to it. Well, why didn't we get around to it? Because we were too busy with the things that we prioritized above the item we were discussing. And I think we need to keep our priorities in a correct level or correct position. I was going to say the technology, and yet I want to say that carefully. Um, Technology is very helpful, but when you start Googling uh, things that are related to the Christian life, Google doesn't really have a standard, or they do, but they don't, uh, that you should go by. Um, they're not going to give you, the, they'll probably give you the answer you want to hear, is what I should say. Um, technology is good. Um, it can, it gets to the point where if you rely on that it affects your uh, your influence to the point where you have worldly, worldly influence coming in and uh, <clears throat> sometimes it can happen in a way so slowly um, the story is told of someone putting a frog in hot water and it jumped out and then somebody put a frog in cold water and put it on a burner slowly and that frog stayed in until it died and that's how uh, worldly influence works uh, a little slow at, at the time, you don't think anything of it, but it will kill your Christian faith eventually. Um, the other thing I see a danger, and I say this very carefully, I appreciate the freedoms that we have in this country, but sometimes I think our faith isn't really being challenged enough. And because of that, we can become lukewarm. And that's all I have for that. Yes, I was thinking about <clears throat> things that are dangers to the church. Um, I had to think of something that uh, makes red flags go up or something that we need to be cautious about. And uh, yeah, one thing that came to mind was prosperity and, and wealth and, and fairly easy lives. And I think that can easily um, lead to apathy, spiritual apathy, and, and our focus can be shifted away from from uh, eternal things like it should be and, and focus on earthly things and our, our treasure uh, can change with with yeah prosperity and, and wealth <clears throat> I think another um, issue that, that we face in our age we're living in the information age and there's just so much information around us it's it's a tsunami of information so many things that you can read about and study on and, and look into. And, and as you look into all this information, there's, there's a lot of uh, crazy ideas. People believe strange things. And uh, I think it can, can be 
something we need to be cautious about. What all are we uh, listening to and, and uh, taking in? It can, can lead to a, a watered-down gospel if we try to accommodate too many things, uh, too many uh, bad ideas out there that, that can, can uh, make our way into, into our lives, if, uh, depending on what we're, what we're taking in with all the information that's available. So that's one thing I thought of. And, and uh, for the third thing, um, a, a caution is, is how we handle disagreements in the church, and, and not thinking our church specifically, but church at large, it's so easy to um, have disagreements that become so sharp that it, it pushes people away, and I think we need to be cautious about that. Thank you. Google is not truth, at least not with a capital T. I think we need to remember that. Um, that clock is going faster than I wanted. Um, over your lifetime, the question was, what are two of the most important things you have learned about life, church, family? Um, let's make it one, if we can, just one thing that you've learned about life, church, or family. Whoever wants to go first. I'll do one. Um, I think routine and schedule is really big for children. So teaching school or whatever else, even the, even at home, I think routine and schedule is big. One thing that I've learned um, over the years, and I need to remind myself often, is that relationships are always the most important um, to focus on people. And uh, for myself, somebody that's a little more introverted, something I need to keep reminding myself that uh, yeah, it's easy to seclude yourself, but uh, focus on building relationships and, and reaching out with the people that are around you. It's always the most important thing to, to invest in. I learned that uh, over my lifetime to learn to put God first in everything. Um, if you have a question, ask God first. Um, when, when you hear speakers speaking, I, I drive a truck a lot, and I listen, I listen to di different speakers, and uh, it's good to know God's word. And when they say something that knows out of line, I can always say, that's not right. And uh, I know what's right because of what Scripture says. And so, again, putting God first in everything, um, even little things like buying a car or whatever, uh, it just always turns out right. One thing I learned in life is to reap what you sow. Your decisions that you make in life, there's either going to be a consequences or a blessing. You decide by what you make your decisions in life, what, is it going to be a blessing to you or is it going to be a consequences for doing wrong? Thank you. Now you all put more work into this than we're going to glean out, but that's all right. Um, next question. As a young parent, how did, or some of you still are relatively young parents, how did or how do you know the balance between discipline and grace? Well, I had six of them, and uh, I can tell you that there were six different personalities, and so there were six different ways to discipline. I had one child where I could look at it, and they knew that look was not good, and things would change, and I had some that required a paddle. Um, communication. I, uh, I always tried to discern, and I didn't learn this right away, this was something that came with experience uh, as children got older. Was this problem done willfully, or was it something they didn't think about? You sit down and you ask them that, and then you tell them, well, you know there's discipline involved and why you're doing it. You want this child to grow up to be a benefit to society instead of a burden, and so that's why we do what we do. Um, do your discipline, do it in love. Uh, things don't go well when you're angry, so don't discipline when you're angry. And 
When you're done, sit there and hold that child until they're done crying. Let them know that you love them. And uh, it, it makes a big difference. As, as Tony said, you do not discipline while you are angry. That never works. The child can detect that you are punishing him out of anger rather than out of love. If you punish him out of love, the child will know that. And explain to them why they are being disciplined. Make sure they understand the reason for their dis being disciplined, but never discipline right on the spot while you are not in the right frame of mind. This is one of those things that when I think about it, separated from the moment, it's easy to come up with an answer and make it sound all good, but when it's in the moment, it's, it's a little harder to be consistent, and, and I can identify with the, the phrase that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, because, uh, yeah, it's, it's not always easy to do the right thing when you're right in the moment. But I think that consistency is really important, as hard as that may be, and I know I, I don't always live up to that, but uh, I just try to picture how how God would respond if he was the father, how would he discipline? And I try to, yeah, keep that in mind as, as I, I want to imitate that, that same uh, loving discipline. Um, so I just try to keep that, that picture of, of what God would do in my mind. All right, so today, Jackson actually did something that kind of applied to this, so that was kind of cool. Not really, but... Um, so he um, did something, and then we kind of had an idea of what happened, but we weren't exactly sure, so we asked him, and he pretty much reinforced what we had thought. And so now he told, he told the truth, and he didn't lie, so that was good. So I wasn't sure on the mode of discipline or what I should do for disciplining. Um, but um, I wanted to reinforce that if he tells the truth, I, 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 don't wanna, I don't want him to be afraid to tell the truth. So it kind of put me in a, a spot there. But I was thinking about this a little bit. Um, without discipline or guidelines and always discipline or always grace, we're not giving them a true perspective of God one way or another. If we're heavy on discipline, they get the image that God is waiting to discipline at every failure. And if we're heavy on grace, they get the image that God's love covers all our sins. And they do not need to worry if they fail because God's grace covers it. With discipline and structure, there is stability and love. When there is only grace and erosion of dis discipline, our words and our rules, rules do not mean anything. And the same with God's laws, right? Well, they don't mean anything. Because if they do disobey, we get grace. We discipline the majority, get grace in the minority. All right, thank you. I have three little boys I'm raising, too, so I'm trying to take notes. As a child, you were taught truth, and you've not drastically changed uh, the application of that truth in your life. And I think that's true for all of us here tonight. I'm not 100% sure, but what we were taught as a child, we're pretty well applying as an adult. <clears throat> how can you expect someone who's raised differently as a child, how can you expect them to change what they think is truth? How can you expect them to forsake their truth if you're not forsaking your truth? And I know this is probably a difficult question, but um, what's the greatest evidence of the truth of Scripture? I looked at that question and I said, what is truth? Um, the thing that came to mind for me is... Uh, the drastic difference between Christianity and Muslims. Um, they grew up believing the Quran is truth, and they stick to that, and they believe that, just like we believe the Bible is truth. So how do you be able to communicate to something like that? It's almost like you have to sit down with them and say, look, I'll present my ideas, you present yours, and we'll see if we can convince each other uh, we know what's truth because we know this, this scripture, many scriptures. I didn't uh, look them up, but uh, there's 
many evidence. You can look at someone's life, how they changed uh, what God does in, in a person's life. So there's truth there. And God's word is alive. But yeah, there's a drastic difference between the Quran and, and the Bible. And uh, I find it hard to answer that question. I'd heard somebody say uh, a while ago, <clears throat> ask the question, what, uh, how would it feel to realize that um, all along we were, we were doing it wrong and really the right way uh, to apply the Bible would be to live like Amish. I mean, the Amish have it right. And uh, what, what kind of commitment would that be if, if we would have to, to live like Amish? And it might be that same commitment for, for some people to, to come over to our application of, of what we see as truth. And, and I think we need to have understanding for those who can see value in what we're doing, the way we do things, but aren't quite willing to, to join us <clears throat> and join us where we're at with, with our applications and, and be careful not to view uh, those people as, as coming up short in truth. And I'm not sure exactly how this, this question was, was geared. I think it was toward Christ, other Christians who are um, applying things differently. Um, but I think we all agree that truth ultimately comes from the Bible, but our applications can differ depending on, on how we read the Bible and uh, what passages we emphasize when we read through that and what, what uh, interpreting principle we're using. Two thoughts. Um, I was going to answer the, the last part of the question. I wasn't sure exactly. Well, in the first part of the question, but the, fir the second part of the question is, what is the greatest evidence of the truth of Scripture? I would say the first one is the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, well, then everything else is of no value, you could say. And so when, um, I think it was at school, we had went through the case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He was an atheist who wanted to prove or debunk the theory of Christianity. Um, and I think you can, you can look it up and you can research it as much as you want. Um, but the truth is the resurrection of Jesus Christ can be proven true just by forensic evidence. Second one is the evidence of creation. I think um, everything around us is created by humans today. And so why wouldn't all of life be created? And maybe that's not the greatest argument. But everywhere you look, you can see the evidence of creation. I mean, jumbo jets don't appear out of nowhere. It's made by uh, someone, right? And so I think just looking at creation, everywhere you look, there's an evidence of a creator. So we have to be created. Give an example of God showing his power in your life. have a, a specific story um, of, of uh, God's power, but I, I can testify as I look back over the, the, the years that I've lived, and especially I would say over our time in South Dakota and, and looking at all the, the things we went through and uh, the stress that, that we, we had and, and then moving into cancer journey and, and everything there, I, I can testify to God's faithfulness through the ups and the downs, and uh, God is, is faithful to, to provide. All right, well, there's, there can be an endless list of the power of God in our lives. Um, and so, so I forget if it was a devotion or something one time that someone um, brought out the fact that we should write down the uh, answers to prayer or God's work in your life, power, showing the power of God's work in your life. And it's somewhere that you can always keep a list of it. So the idea was that the children of Israel built altars so that they could say every time that someone asked about this altar, oh, what was it for? And then they can tell them to the, pass it on generation to generation. And so I have a couple, but I'll only share one. Um, so when, when I wrecked my car, like I think it was two years ago already, um, I think it was two years ago. Maybe this fall would be two years. Uh, anyhow, we needed a vehicle. And I wasn't sure what we were going to do. 
But um, eventually, um, I was praying about it, and I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I um, wasn't sure if we wanted to take out a loan for a minivan and how all that would work. And um, just wasn't sure what we are going to do. So I was praying about it. Um, and I said, you know what, I'll wait till tomorrow. I'll wait a little bit and see once what, if, I, if anything comes up and see if God answers our prayers. Well, I think it was either two hours later um, that evening, um, my, one of my friends said, hey, we have this vehicle sitting around. I heard you had an accident. We have this vehicle sitting around that is going to be sitting all winter. And I don't really want it, don't want it sitting around um, because I still have to pay insurance on it and whatever else. It would be just as good if you would run it. So I was like, oh, wow. Um, and so right like that, within, uh, before I could even go to bed, I think it was that evening yet, that I had my answer. And so that was just one instance, but there's many instances of God showing his power. I've had sawed-off shotguns within six inches of my head. I've been in accidents. And I look at all that, and I wonder, why am I here today? Why did God allow me to be here? Um, there's a reason. I don't know all the answers to that. But I do know that I'm alive because God is real. Um, I've been in truck accidents. Uh, one of them that I think of at the moment is uh, was in a garbage truck, and... Uh, it was in the wintertime, it was snowing, and we were halfway up the side of the mountain, and it broke loose, and the driver just couldn't get footing, and we went down over, and rolled probably seven times, and uh, came to a stop. I was pinned in, he wasn't, and he went for help, and while I was in the truck, it caught fire, and to this day, I still don't know how I got out, but I got out, and just things like that, the life change that I had before I knew the Lord to now. Uh, if you'd have saw me before I met my wife, uh, you'd have wondered why she was going out with somebody like me. I wasn't afraid to wear my hair down to my shoulders, mustache, handlebar mustache at that. Um, and the Lord changed a lot. And I lost a lot of friends, but I gained more friends. Friends that were real. Friends that... When you're down and out, they're there for you. Before that, I didn't have that. And so it's quite obvious that the Lord has been with me. Blessed me with six children, uh, raising good families in the mission field, and I give all the credit to the Lord. The Bible says, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. God cares for every one of us. Doesn't matter what age, where we're living, what we're doing, God takes care of us. He cares for us. And you know, when we face trials and we face temptations to do something that's wrong, God's love is there waiting to help us through that tough time and the, uh, as that we're facing. He gives us strength to remain faithful to him. If we call upon him, he cares for us. Praise the Lord. Why does God harden hearts? Fourteen times in Scripture a statement is made that God hardens someone's heart. Nine of those times are in relation to Pharaoh. Outside of Pharaoh, God says that he will harden the hearts of the Egyptians in Exodus fourteen seventeen. That the Lord hardened the spirit of Sion, king of Hezbon, Deuteronomy 2.30. That was the Lord that hardened the hearts of the northern kings in Canaan, Joshua 11.20. And the prophet Isaiah asks why God has hardened Israel's hearts. Also in the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul states, whom God wills, he hardens. So the question, why does God harden hearts? The Bible says, the Spirit of God will not always strive with man. And if we need to answer the call when God calls us, and these people that had in hearing this question here that had hardened hearts, they were living a wicked life. They weren't listening. They were, li they were not believers. They were unbelievers. And there's a consequence that you need to pay for that. So make sure that we are living a life according to his will and his purpose for us and that we are not on the wicked side or the side of the unbelievers. 
I had to think of uh, the case of Pharaoh here. Um, if you look at each one of them plagues that came uh, into Egypt, you will find that somehow that was a god that they were worshiping. They worshiped the grasshopper, the frogs, you name it. All those plagues were related to that. And God was showing them that, um, and the Israelites, I mean, he was showing them as well that he is God and what you're worshiping is nothing and allowed what they were worshiping to plague them. Uh, sometimes God will harden the heart. Just for an example, maybe in today's uh, world, to make it a little easier to understand, God would allow maybe a township meeting uh, where things don't go like we thought it would, and we can't do this or that. Do we go home talking bad about the township? Well, how do we respond to that? Uh, sometimes God hardens hearts of certain people, uh, whether it's getting on an airline or whatever. He doesn't want us on there. He wants us going another way or just wait. And sometimes it can be losing money on a flight or whatever it might be. But God hardens hearts for a reason, and we need to accept that. Yeah, this is one of those verses or, or ideas that, that's hard to wrap our minds around. Why would God harden somebody's heart? And I think it's in Jeremiah as well that God actually tells Jeremiah not to pray for this people. He says, don't pray for Israel. And things like that make you wonder, why, why would God do that? <clears throat> and I think it's usually a result of rejections, repeated rejections beforehand. And I think if you look at the story of Pharaoh... Um, I think it's three times that it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then you read that God hardened his heart. Um, and <clears throat> I remember studying a verse in Matthew 13 where Jesus is explaining why he speaks in parables. And uh, I forget the exact verse, but he, he quotes from Isaiah saying that this people ha have ears, but they don't hear, and they have eyes, but they don't see. <clears throat> and says, he says their heart... Hearts have waxed gross, and, and that has the idea of being thick or, or calloused. And, uh, you know, if we get calluses on our hands, it's from handling rough uh, things over and over again. And if your heart is thick and calloused, that means you've heard a, a message over and over again, and it hasn't penetrated, and uh, there's no response. And, and because of that, <clears throat> uh, they, they're completely missing the, the truth of the message, um, thinking of the parables that Jesus told, they were hearing, but it didn't sink in. And uh, I think that's the place that we get to eventually. God hands us over to the consequences of, of our choices, our ways. And it's, it's not the case where God's just not even giving a person a chance. It's, it's a result of our prior choices. I think three things, um, to accomplish his will, to show his power um, in the case of the Egyptians and their gods, and then to make a proud heart humble, or to get a proud heart to listen. Uh, while we're in the Old Testament, let's, can we skip the next question and go to the next one and come back to that other one? Does that make sense? All right. Um, when Moses set out an optional donation in Exodus 35:21, it says that everyone donated whose heart was stirred in him. How do hearts get stirred, and who does that? All right. Well, I was trying to look at some of the what what some of these words are meaning, but. Um, in the Greek, it's leb for the heart. And so it's also used figuratively, very widely um, for feelings. Um, it shows the will or even the intellect of a person. Likewise, it's the center of everything. It's the seat of passions or emotions. Um, and it says multiple times Jesus was moved by compassion. Um, he feels pity and sympathy for those in pain and desires to alleviate diseases. Um, 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, Praise be to God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort. And so us as being made in him, his image, 
he gives us some of his likeness or some of his um, emotions per se. And so when their hearts are moved or stirred up, I think that's part of the inner man or God's. When he created us, he gave us some of those feelings and stuff as well. And so I think that's kind of what's going on there. Um, but ultimately, it's showing God. Um, God does the stirring in our hearts. I had a hard time with the question until I looked up the verses to it and uh, read a little bit after that uh, verse, and it talked about they're putting up the temple, and Moses needed help. And so he asked the people to give, and it says that they gave earrings, they gave necklaces, they gave braces, uh, they gave gold, they gave silver, and helped build the temple. And likewise today, when we build churches, or help to get a church started. Uh, we help clean it. We, we do all that, uh, give wherever we can, help financially, whatever it might be. Uh, some people did a lot of elbow grease in uh, renovating the church and getting it ready for uh, the congregation to start. And that's pretty much the picture here when it comes to donating. Um, and as long as we all have the attitude of wanting to help, when someone asks for it, we should be willing to do that. I think we would all agree that God stirs hearts. <clears throat> but I think another factor is uh, the person's outlook and, and what their desires are, um, is, is their desire to do God's will. And, and um, if you look at the context there, yeah, they, they wanted to help built this temple and they saw different needs that needed to be filled and they were, were giving things that needed to, um, to do that. And I, I think we can apply that today for, for uh, people who are seeking to do God's will. Um, they're looking around for, for opportunities, what they can do, and uh, their hearts are stirred as they um, are, are seeking and desiring to do God's will. As a Christian, if we see someone in need, we should be willing to help. Now, is it a true need or is it a want? And that's something we need to decide. And too often, I think we figure, well, that's just a want and not a need. And we don't let the, the will of the Lord for us to help that person. It gets in our way when we just figure, well, that's a, a want rather than a need. But you know, when, when someone's giving and you see them giving, it stirs within your heart. The Holy Spirit puts that little nudge into your heart that maybe you should be helping to give as well. And do we respond to that? Or do we just pass it on? All right. I think... For the last uh, question here, I'm going to combine the two uh, last questions. Um, if you don't have a response for the last one, that's fine. Um, so uh, raising a young family takes a lot of money, time, and patience. How did or are you balancing this as a young father? And for those of you who are older, looking back, do you wish you would have saved more money in that time of life or spent more time with your family? And then also uh, with that question, do you think it's, is it selfish for a young father, just because someone might be able to afford to not work as much as someone else, is it selfish for them to not work and spend time with their family? Or they sh should they be out there, um, you know, giving as much as uh, everyone else um, of their time? <clears throat> and then also the last question, um, anything else you want to share uh, with the folks here tonight? Um, lessons you've learned in life, little nuggets of truth that you want to pass on to others. The song says it isn't love until you give it away. And the other one says it doesn't give until it hurts. Uh, as far as storing up, when do you have enough? You know, I'm, at, I'm in retirement age. I'm working part-time. Do I have enough stored away for me or don't I? You know, that's a question that gets rolled over and over and over time again. When you look at the rich young ruler, he had his barns heaping full. What does the Lord tell him? Go sell what you have and give it to the poor. 
And what did he do? He turned around and went away sorrowfully. Then you look at the widow they were collecting. She came and gave her last couple mites that she had to put into the collection. And what did the Lord say? She gave more than the rest of you. What is our attitude towards giving? Yes, we need to take care of our family. We need to make sure we get our bills paid. But how often do we need that jet ski, that ATV four-wheeler, the boat, the cabin up on the hill, the uh, seashore restored area? How often, you know, do we really need that? No, them are once. We can live without them, but they cost. So we need money for that, so we can't give as much to, you know, to the church or to those that need help. Are we a rich man or are we the widow? That's my question. So ponder that. Well, I don't have a whole lot to share on this one either, but because um, I'm young yet. But I think what I hear again and again from older people and people that have told me um, as I, when we had our first child especially is that they grow up fast and you'll wish that you spent more time with them. And so I kind of tried to keep that in my, in my mind as I'm working because they're growing up fast and I do want to watch my children grow up. So. No, you wouldn't be selfish, I don't think, to uh, spend more time with your children. Well, I was looking at the part where it says it takes a lot of money. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of money to raise a family. I'm sorry. Uh, my parents were poor when I was young. I remember eating beans three times a day because that's all we had. Um, and yet, I can say that I had a good upbringing, I had a good life. Grew up on a farm, and uh, yeah, it, it's, it's basically spending time with your children. Remember, you're teaching them to grow up to be a benefit to society, not a burden. And so spend time with them. Like Damien said, they grew up fast. It just seemed like yesterday that I was standing beside Christina on my front porch in Richland, and she was only a couple years old, and now she's married with children. Uh, and that's how it goes. Spend time with your children and your grandchildren. Uh, that's the most important. Teach them what you can. Like it says, it is a balance, and I think both are needed. Um, we need to spend time with family. Family is very important. Um, but I think uh, we need to be aware of what influences we're, we're being shaped by. I think our culture, our society views work as a drudgery, and, and it doesn't have to be. <clears throat> so we need to make sure we're, we're aware of that. But I think on the other side, too, our Mennonite subculture can maybe place a little too much emphasis on, on work, and, and uh, you know, we just feel like we've got to get the job done no matter what. And... Uh, um, yeah, we need, to, we need to have a balance <clears throat> and uh, just be aware of, of what uh, factors are, are shaping our, our uh, outlook on that. All right. Well, I enjoyed this tonight. I hope you all did as well. Thank you all very much for your time and effort put into this. I, uh, I was blessed to be here. Y'all can go back to your seats. I don't know what's going to happen with two microphones beside each other, so I'll move back. Um, let's pray, and then uh, Lee, if you want to come up and close with two songs. Let's pray. Dear God, uh, I thank you for these uh, four brothers here. Uh, I thank you for their willingness to um, be open with their lives and share with all of us. I pray that we could um, apply what we heard and uh, take away the little nuggets of truth and use them to better our lives, to better our um, influence in society, and to better our walk with you. Thank you for everyone uh, who was willing to come out tonight, and I uh, pray that you would bless the remainder of this service. That's all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Uh, one thing I did forget to add at the end. Um, if you see any of these four guys that were up here tonight, thank them for their willingness to share. Um, they put a lot of effort into this, a lot more than I did. Um, so thank them if you see them tonight. When I think about what it takes um, for a vibrant Christian brotherhood, what does it take for a church to be growing and to be upbuilding one another to live for the Lord? And I know we've heard this over the pulpit before, but the word that comes to my mind is vulnerability, being open. If we're vulnerable with one another and we're open with one another, our Christian lives can thrive and we can all benefit from it. And these four men tonight were vulnerable and open with us and thank them for that. Lee, if you want to come up and uh, have a couple songs. <laughs>